Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How you doing, Jim? Hey, good evening. Good to see you. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. I'm on my phone now. Is that working? That works. We're hearing you, Ray. It's about time I had some smarts about these kind of things. I'm not technical at all. Me neither. I wish my daughter were around. <laughs> yeah. If, and, uh, and it gets that stuff. I don't. It'd be worth having another daughter, Ray, just so they could <laughs> do your computer. <laughs> I'm behind on the reading, Paul. About a third of it was really, it brought a new angle. In some ways, I feel like I'm learning a new language. I'm in the desert as well, Jim. Tell me where you went into the desert. I go into the desert. Once you start mentioning Hegel and Zizak and all those wonderful people. I'm always just trying to illustrate a singular point. If they're not helpful to reaching that point, it's not any huge disaster. You can sort you can turn to Kierkegaard that he's illustrating a point that I've already made, you know, with sickness unto death, that he's dealing with Hegel. Part of this it's a philosophical, theological conversation. You know, when you go back to Anselm, he's putting this all in a very different register, that he's going to begin to talk about salvation in terms there's a gap, and we need to close this gap, and of course the the gap is within the will. We've entered into a new register, I think, with divine satisfaction, uh, talking about what it means to reify something. Anselm is on a project that I think is the founding of the beginnings of modern foundationalism. And he does this in what is called the monologio. It's not the proslogio and not the, you know, the ontological argument, but it's actually a cosmological argument. And he's going to then describe throughout he's doing what I'm describing with the word. You know that he's paralleling the idea of Jesus as the logos and the human word. What is the word? The word is singular, right? There's not a multiplicity of words. There's one word who is the source of all words, all language. If we're going to arrive at the word within ourselves, we have to go within. We have to close the door of our mind, close the door of your room, and think this thought. You know, this is actually the ontological argument, but he's doing a similar project in the monologue. And the, the singular word is not going to be an ordinary word, not ordinary language or a multiplicity of words. It's going to be a singular word. It's going to be a place. It's going to be an experience. If you can just go into your room, close the door, empty your mind of all thought, and arrive at the place of language, you've arrived at the place of God within you. I'm describing the meditation, the mysticism of Anselm, who is often thought to be the first rational. This is why I call him a a rational mystic. His rationalism is built upon this notion that within the word of human language, we find Jesus. That if you go in within yourselves, and, you know, the word om, or the greatest thought that can be thought, here is the founding 
of a kind of foundationalism that actually who we call the father of modernism, René Descartes. You understand René Descartes is just doing Anselm of Canterbury. He's just repeating the Anselm's project. Descartes doesn't like Aquinas. He likes Anselm. And I think it's precisely for this reason that he likes Anselm. The Cartesian cogito, I think, therefore I am. That who I am is in my thought. I can arrive at myself. I can arrive at my identity. That's despair. Can you give us a, a working, defined foundationalism just for the average person? You know, Descartes is actually looking out his window. I think he's in Paris. And he's saying we, we all are dependent. And he's thinking, of, he's a good Catholic. It's not a direct attack on Catholicism. At least in his mind, it's not. The, the Some of the they're going to think differently. He said, you know, he looks out at the buildings, you know, he said, we all tr trust in tradition. We trust in authority. We trust in the authority of the church, but the church can only speak to us of matters of faith. It cannot speak to us of matters of, of reason and science. And so we need to set that aside, and we need to lay a foundation that is sure. He's literally saying, let's rip up the old foundations, and let's lay a new foundation. And his cogito is the beginning of this. That is, can you refute this? I go into a warm room, he's describing. And, you know, he's actually a soldier when he does this. It's cold out on the battlefield. I think he's actually bored. And I think that they may be baking bread or something in this room, and it's warm. And he goes in, he says, you know, I can doubt everything. I can doubt that I'm here thinking in this warm room. I can doubt that this room exists. I, maybe a demon is deceiving me. Maybe I'm at home smoking my pipe and I've fallen asleep in front of the fireplace. He says, I can doubt everything, but the one thing I cannot doubt is that I'm doubting. And if I'm doubting, I'm thinking. And if I think, I exist. I think, therefore, I am. So he imagines that he's come to an irrefutable, indubitable ground, a new foundation. And he's going to build on this foundation. And by the way, he argues all the way to God. He is a contemporary with uh, Galileo. Descartes is also working with the rotations of the planets. And, you know, actually he sees what ha happens to Galileo. Descartes had great hopes for his own book on the planets, that it would be incorporated into the schools. And he withdrew it when he saw what they did to Galileo. But that's what he's arguing for. He's arguing for a foundation that's no longer dependent upon faith, no longer dependent upon any authority except my own authority. And he's laying this new foundation. And so what modernism is, is built upon this kind of foundationalism. We don't need faith. We don't need anybody to tell. We don't need any authority. I can establish indubitable grounds within myself. I think, therefore I am. And there is the beginning of the modern project. You know, foundationalism is this idea of a kind of self-evident or a self, literally self-grounding system. Post-modernity, then, with their deconstruction, that's what they're deconstructing. The whole thing falls apart. And, of course, it begins to fall apart with Immanuel Kant. Yeah. Because Kant says about the cogito, something that Jacques Lacan and others are going to say is, you know, actually, I think, therefore I am. There's the thinking, and then there's the thinking thing, and the twain never shall meet. 
That is, the thing that thinks and the thought that is thought are two separate entities. They imagine that they melded into one another, that in some way there is a support of being through thought. And Kant's point is, well, actually, the thing itself, you know, this is his noumena, the thing in itself, and the phenomena, thought, appearances, phenomenology, you could never arrive at the noumena through the phenomena. Kant is just posing this. He, he doesn't picture himself as destroying this. He just says, well, that's the parameters. You know, that's where we're at right now. And that comes apart. Then Hegel comes along and says, well, you know, actually, Kant poses this difference and this impossibility. And Hegel says, you know, the problem of Kant is not the problem, it's the solution. That is that uh, Hegelian master-slave dialectic is actually going to build on the Cartesian cogito, not that the cogito has the answer, but it is the problem. This is Lacan, this is Zizek. They are Cartesian, not in the modernist sense of Cartesianism. You know, that, that goes unquestioned. They say Kant's right, but that gap between the thinking thing, me and myself, the substance of who I am, and my thought, that gap, that tension, that, that attempt to obtain myself, that's not the problem of the self. That's what a self is, that struggle, that agonistic struggle. That's why they're going to read Romans 7 and say, Paul's describing the human subject in this, the law of the mind, the law of the body pitted against one another. Zizek reads that and says, yeah, that's as good as it gets. And so postmodernism is the deconstruction of this notion, what would be foundationalism? In theology, we would call it ontotheology, ontology, you know, that modern theology is. It's the apologetics. It's, it's actually going back again to Anselm. I can prove, you can, I can prove God to you irrefutably in the <laughs> ontological <laughs> argument. What Anselm is doing is just a precursor to what Descartes is doing. The weird thing about those arguments for God, the rational arguments for God, is they all start with man. It is all about human thought yeah. and obtaining the essence, the foundation within human thought. And so postmodernism, I think as Christians, we say, yeah, that's right. The foundations that would be laid by Descartes, but I would go back a step and say, yeah, the foundations that would be laid by Anselm. We need to undo those. Those are idolatrous. And you understand enlightenment thought, you know, what else is in foundationalism? Well, that, there's a whole system of scientism, you know, mm. not science, but scientism of the, the, in a kind of Newtonian science in which Newton literally takes what I'm doing, you know, describing that the law is absolute. He does that in science. The law is even God when he created the universe, it's subject to the laws of time and space. So it, it's a science, but you can just go right through. It's a psychology, but so too in all of human endeavor. There has been this notion in mathematics, and it really doesn't matter where you go, that the foundations, that the discipline lays its own foundation. There's been this kind of lie that just gets repeated, that we can go back and ground everything in our own reason. Postmodernism in all of these areas is that falling apart. It's fallen apart in every realm, in science, 
you know, this is the significance of the Einsteinian revolution, but actually Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions in mathematics, who is it? Kurt Gödel, I'm never sure how to say his name, who talks about, you know, set theory, that there is no self-grounding mathematics. Uh, this is John Milbank writes his big book on sociology, doing the same thing. So foundationalism, we're just really talking about human endeavor in the modern period. It's all falling apart. And unfortunately, many Christians are lamenting that fact, not recognizing, no, that thing should fall apart. It deserves to fall apart. It was never adequate ground upon which to build. And yet we have whole systems of theology, whole systems of the church that have imagined that this is the place to build. And that is modern ontotheology. That's the kind of the modern project in apologetics. That's sort of what you're still getting in American evangelicalism. The word has not leaked out. God is dead. And that's what Friedrich Nietzsche meant. He meant modern philosophy, modern undergirding of culture. He was correct. He saw it happening. He is like a prophet, and he's pronouncing the end of that with the death yeah. of God. He said, God is dead, and we have killed him. Yeah. You know, when you go back to the Bible, or you go back to Christus Victor, that what's being described, in a way, it's more straightforward, but we're not used to hearing it in terms of Christus Victor. We're used to the the legal theory kind of stuff. But actually, I think the legal theory stuff, first of all, I don't think it makes sense. And the other thing is that when you get into the details of it, it really doesn't make sense. It gets very obscure. I'm working in those registers to illustrate. I'm always illustrating the same point. And the, that same point is that there is a reification of language. Or to say the same thing, this is almost straightforward. You know, in, in Hegel, there is a reification of death. That death and nothingness, think of a dialectic pair. You need the something, and then you need the nothing. You need life, and you need death. Both parts of that dialectic are necessary for him to get a system up and running. It's always playing with this dialectic of making nothing, of reifying it, making it a, a, a polar opposite. Just think of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, to understand what good is in that system, you need the supposed opposite, the yes. difference, and that's evil. For and sure. to understand what evil is, you need the good. That you get the meaning up and running uh, through the opposed pairs. I think I understand some of the main concepts. And I actually, I think I come to understand that as when you throw in the psychoanalytics, you know, Hegel and Zizek and all that, I think I, I think I do grasp that they are illustrations. No, I do find myself lost in that. And I think part of, part of it, and even the, uh, even the language, penal substitution and Christus Victor, and not so much lost in the language as much as, I don't know what everybody else's setting is, uh, but my settings in a local church body where uh, penal substitution is just considered gospel. So when you're having a conversation with somebody, you could have a conversation with somebody, they'll agree with everything that you're saying, but you're, you're speaking two different languages at times. I, I guess I compare it to going to a foreign country and 
understanding, you know, the culture bits and pieces of it, but uh, very well entrenched in my own culture. And so having to make some of those. And I hope everybody understands penal substitution makes no sense whatsoever, but we've all been trained to ignore that fact. Not only trained to ignore that, but it's so predominant within our culture that everybody we read uh, now I've, I've expanded my library now, but everybody talks in that language. And there's even small things that are said where I'm starting to pick up, I think, little by little, like, wait a minute, that's not right or, or something to that effect. I don't feel safe raising the question that this doesn't make sense. <laughs> I did raise it once and I kind of got shouted down, literally. Yeah. Your class, this class is the first experience I've had feeling safe to raise questions and to uh, lift up some uh, rocks that I wasn't allowed to look under before. The, a lot of the ideas, the, the notion that we have, oh, I know we'll punish you and that'll make everything right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that will cause you to suffer and that'll make things right. For some reason, we've all bought into that. And then we've imagined that God buys into that. And of course, none of it makes sense. If, you know, the illustration I used, uh, if somebody stole my phone and I found out they were arrested and they were going to torture them, that doesn't help. I don't, I'm out one phone. It doesn't resolve the situation. I may delight in their being tortured, but all you would say about me in that instance is, man, you're a peculiarly wicked individual, you know, yeah. somebody that delighted in the torture or found that satisfying. Oh, yeah. I find that very satisfying. Or let's make it worse. Maybe they didn't get the guy that stole my phone, but they got his brother and, you know, he could substitute. And I find it satisfying that they torture his brother. Oh, we're getting off into perverse stuff here. You know, it's been said to us so much and so loud that God is satisfied by the suffering of his son. Oh, really? That doesn't make sense. He wrote, as described in Genesis and captured in the notion of a sinful desire, there is a lure, L-U-R-E, which draws humans out of or beyond life. There is a pursuit of unreachable excess that cannot be integrated into the life process. That's a tremendous, powerful statement. There's an impetus or a, uh, an energy that causes us or allows us or we're tricked into reaching for something that seems life-giving, but it's actually a nothingness. And then, that, and then in the middle of that paragraph, you say, this is how it can be understood, how God's prediction is fulfilled. And the day you eat of it, you will die. That's literally, that's the first time that clicked. I want to say thank you for uh, putting that thought together. Oh, oh, I appreciate that. And that, you know, that can just be endlessly illustrated. Yeah. I always think of crude illustrations. David Carradine, you know, he died in a hotel room in, I think, was it Thailand? That yeah. uh, he, uh, that a, the prostitute was actually choking him to death in a, a, a sexual game they were playing. You know, death is the beyond. Death is the transcendent. You may play with that in any number of ways. You know, people literally are killing themselves to obtain ecstasy as if this transcendent, which is nothing, I hope we all understand that what is being traded is some living 
you know, human is trading nothing, death, for what they imagine is some sort of ultimate something. So I think you can just endlessly illustrate that. And that's really all that I'm doing with the Hegel. Hegel is just his philosophy is an articulation, a justification for what I just described. That is, he's going to found a philosophical understanding on the idea that death really is, or nothingness really is, part of an absolute system. By the way, he gets the phrase from Luther. You know, this is the genealogy of this phrase, that Luther coins the phrase that God died on the cross. All that Luther meant by it was that he wanted to get away from splitting the humanity of Christ from the deity of Christ. Hegel will pick up that phrase, and he'll talk about God through Christ taking up death and nothingness into himself, because that is a part of what is required for God to fully become divine. You know, he inhabits every category, realizes every category. Friedrich Nietzsche comes along and takes up the same phrase, and says, yes, God is dead. That they're all playing with this concept. Death is then the ultimate expression of the despair of those who hold on to that kind of orientation. And that's what Christ conquers, conquers sin, death, uh, the devil, and despair. I mean, it's, it's a reality whether I accept it or not, or whether anybody else accepts it or not. You're almost quoting Kierkegaard here. And of course, what he would say, he would agree with you in part, but then go on to say, but yes, some people don't know that they're in despair. They're not consciously in despair. Mm-hmm. And he said that they're actually the worst sort, you know, in that instance, they're in the worst condition of anyone. To be in despair and know you're in despair is one thing, but to actually be in a condition in which you should be in despair and not is an even worse condition. The condition can be described in three ways. In regards to my own self-identity, I can want to be someone else. I consciously don't want to be me. And so I want to actually, I'd really like to be David Rawls. (laughs) Wouldn't we all? Yeah. Or it could be that, in fact, I want to be me. But of course, if I want to be me, that means I'm not. Some way I failed to obtain what it is that I want. Three, what's the third one? To be one. The first two are despair. Uh, the third one would be to be oneself. The idea is that there's a mediator in this. You find that that who you are, he's not using the language of God and, and Christ, but that's what he means. That in some way you discover who you are through this mediated understanding that who we are we can't mediate who we are to ourselves, but it's mediated to us through Christ. You know, he calls it the, the power that has established the self. Yeah, we can't establish ourselves. List those three again, self-identity. You know, this is the sickness unto death, someone who's in despair. I look at someone else, I would like to be them, or I'd like to be dot, 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 whatever it is. Maybe I want to be the king, or I want to be president, in order, I want to be something that I'm not. So you're in despair about what you are. The other is that I want to find myself. I want to fully discover myself. Think here of the Cartesian cogito. I think, therefore I am. It's all about a kind of self-discovery. He imagines that the thought will establish who he is. You know, this is Kant's critique. He says, well, there's a split between the thought 
and the, the thinking thing. And so the, the second is I'd really like to be myself means you're not yourself. And then the third is, you know, the power that establishes the self. And that's really what we're talking about. I can't establish myself through my thought. I can't establish myself through my own power. That who establishes me in that relation is the one who established the relation in the first place. And of course, here he's talking about God and Christ. He, he never uses that language. So I'm just responding here to Ray's point. Yeah, all these are positions of despair, but it may be that one is not conscious that they're in despair. And yet, would they be considered uh, deceiving themselves, lying to themselves? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Those who don't realize, is that would that become a part of our evangelistic effort to share with people who don't know that they're in despair, that they are in despair? I, I think it is. This could be a, a cruel thing. This was, Francis Schaeffer used to say this. He said, you don't want to deconstruct somebody's worldview without offering them an alternative into that yeah. worldview. You know, this is the thing I'm doing with pride, the pride shame axis, that we are desperate for identity and to put on an identity. If we're thinking of clothing, we need to be clothed in something. I, it, you can't be unclothed in terms of identity. The picture of shame in the Bible, shame is the category that we've lost, or not lost is the wrong word, but certainly it's been de-emphasized, that we're more focused on guilt. And unfortunately then, with the language of guilt, we've also lost this language of doing identity. That what Christianity is about is, oh, there's this failed identity of failure to be fully human, and how can we be fully human? I think that's you know what we have in Christ in the second Adam. But guilt then is a kind of subcategory to that. It all gets focused there on kind of legal categories. So yeah, I think it has it pertains to identity. I mean, anytime you put your identity in something less than God, I'm from Texas. Did I tell you I was from Texas? I got me a big belt buckle, and you know, I got me a hat and I got me a horse. I'm a Texan. That's an identity. You know, you can do it in any number of ways. Well, you just see it all around us that that's what the human drive is, is to in some way establish the self. And that pursuit of identity, pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before shame is actually the way it's worked out in the wisdom literature. That is because those identities are always fragile. It'll never be enough to have a big belt buckle and a big hat. It'll never be enough, you know, whatever it is that we might attach ourselves to, that's going to fall apart on us. That leads into the idolatry. That and then the whole idea of community. You got this proud Texan. He or she would be, you know, yeah, I got my buds. They're proud Texans too. Yeah. Patriotism, that's nationalism, that's race, race theory, uh -huh. that I'm, I'm a white guy. I'm not a black guy. <laughs> Just on that, so I lead a congregation in a Chinese church. I don't speak Chinese, so it's the English-speaking kids of the Chinese church. Anyway, I was just thinking for, for this ethnic church, Chinese church, not to think of themselves fundamentally and centrally as Chinese, it would just blow their minds. Like They would not be able to figure out what it even means to be alive if it wasn't for their, their Chineseness. Uh, because they're a migrant church in a, in Australia, it takes on even more significance. Whether it's a Texan, Chinese people in Australia, white Australians just down here flying the Australian flag, 
really proudly. I think it's because next door to them, it's a Middle Eastern family that just moved in. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they don't want to be identified. <laughs> That's yeah. right. You understand? That's what in Japan, what I was always up against. And when I said that I never wanted to be cruel in doing this, because this is true of Japanese, that their prime identity is just being Japanese. The religion actually fits under that category of Japanese-ness. Mm. And the thing you can do historically is, you know, it's really not that long ago that this identity was established. It's really in the when Perry comes into Tokyo Bay, the government establishes committees to cr literally create an identity for the people. They come up with a national religion. You know, this is state Shinto is a very different thing than that folk religion. And then they'll come up with the ways in which Japanese people are unique. They have a unique language. They have unique physiology that literally there's the belief that Japanese physically are different. You know, the Japanese intestine is a long intestine. You understand the sheep and the deer and the antelope, these peaceful, gramnivorous animals, they have long intestines. And we Japanese are like those peace-loving animals. But you know, you Westerners have short intestines, like the <laughs> lions and the tigers. And that's why you're so bloodthirsty and violent. And even your religion is a violent religion. It's a religion that was founded in the desert. And a desert religion is a harsh environment in which you have to kill and eat your animal, your farm friends, in order to survive. And you've incorporated that even into your Christian religion. But we Japanese are harmonious. We, you know, we blend into nature, whereas you, this goes on and on and on. So when I'm saying this, I'm not, I don't mean to be trivial about it. There are entire identities built into national identities. You understand, though, the Japanese are, this language all comes from the West. They're just mirroring what they saw in Great Britain. You know, the British talk about, you understand the English language is the most unique language in all the world. Yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. In other words, they're doing what the British did. The thing with the Japanese, you can actually, my nephew went, he uh, is fluent in Japanese and literate, and he went into the Diet Building. He's written a book for Harvard University Press in which he traces the meetings in which they're running this down. They're literally creating this way of thinking that is going to replace the former way of thinking in which Japan, you know, before the 1800s, if you said to some Japanese person in Kagoshima, who are you? They wouldn't have said, I'm a Japanese person. They would have said, well, I'm of the Satsuma clan and we worship the horse or, you know, I'm of the Choshu clan. So the identity would have been local and the gods would have been local. But what's happening in the, the Meiji Restoration is then the creation of a national identity. I'm saying all this because I think this is more accessible to us because it's so recent. But of course, we've all been put under the same delusion that in some way, Western identity, you know, whatever, the Anglo identity, American identity, that that is the identity of the nation state. We have been absorbed into this as much as Japanese are absorbed into it. 
but we may in fact not be as aware of mm -hmm. it because that's the water in which we all swim. Sorry, Paul, so not, not to pick on the Japanese, but just as a case study. So how does the right, that, that identity cope with World War II and all that evidence to the contrary uh, as to them being peaceful and peace-loving and all of that? that basically, they, they have to deny that, right? Ignore it, never happened. You understand that World War II, that it was not, we Japanese were not the aggressors. In fact, to talk about us invading China is the wrong language. We were just expanding our territory. Uh, the, you know, the Chinese are a people that they needed our guidance. They needed our superior technology so that we came in to, to give them the benefits of our... By the way, what I'm saying, obviously, is a, the language of oppression and of colonialism, but the language of colonialism is what they heard from Westerners who would have invaded Japan. In other mm. words, that what are you know what is an Asian? What is an Oriental person? Well, you understand the Oriental people; they're kind of childlike. They obey their passions, you know. And we Westerners, well, we are more rational and we we're more logically oriented. More civilized, enlightened. I'm, I hope everybody understands. I'm lying here. I'm just, but I'm just repeating the colonial, sort of Oriental, you know, Occidental understanding that they've picked up. So when we talk about identity, the idea of identity in a nation state, you understand, is a fairly recent thing in human history. What if you actually looked at the actual people in the United States or in the Americas? What are these people? The whole thing is invented. You know, it's it is clearly a fabricated understanding, but no less so any identity. In other words, that's always what these identities do. The nation state is obviously a fabricated identity. I would just say, but that's always, in other words, tribal identity or whatever it is, it's always gone through. And it's it consists of a deception, but don't don't mis misunderstand me here. I'm not saying, you know, if you go to Japan. There aren't things that you might encounter there that are different or, you know, you want to use the word unique. If you use that word, probably what you need to realize is that is a buzzword that Japanese love. So to say that we are absolutely unique, you don't understand our brains are different from you Westerners. This I went into quite a bit because of the Japanese language. The Japanese language is a Val dominant language. And because of that val dominance of the language, our brains have evolved differently. Uh, an example of this difference is the way that we receive the sounds of nature. In you know, for we Japanese, when we hear the sounds like crickets, that is actually received in the left hemisphere of our brain, the linguistic side of our brain. And so too with all of the sounds of nature. That so nature speaks to we Japanese, where you Westerners, you hear crickets, it's just noise to you. Well, that's because your brain has evolved differently. You say, well, you say, that's crazy talk. But wait a minute, who is it that, you know, would refer to Asian people or dark people as monkey-like? This also goes back to, you know, Kyoto University. A man does monkey studies at Kyoto University, and he embraces that idea. He says, indeed, the Japanese are uh, closer to nature. You know, he did a whole uh, study on the monkeys on the southern island of, 
of Kyushu and then on the southern islands. And it turns out that the Japanese people and Japanese monkeys share many of the characteristics like group identity, like indulgence from the mother. And indeed, we are monkey-like. But you Westerners, uh, you're getting the idea. In other words, we can hit this in a light way and, and imagine that it's a kind of trivial thing. But there's been a lot invested in this building up of identities. And we are just saturated in it. So much so that it's almost impossible. I, I think this thing that happened with Whoopi Goldberg is an illustration of how mm-hmm. impossible it is to have a conversation in this country today about race and identity. You can't approach it because people do imagine that there is some unique racial aspect that they can cling on to. You know, who mm-hmm. began that? Who started that? Well, it was white people. What are white people? There are no white people before the founding of the United States. That's a category that comes into existence. You know, Italians and and, uh, people who are not maybe in the beginning, even the Irish, it's not clear that they were white people. And, of course, everyone wanted to be white. They didn't want to be known as Italian-Americans or even German Americans, they wanted. And so there was a new category. And of course, white existed over against black. And so it is a construct. And I don't know how you can have a public conversation about that today, because that is their identity. They've invested themselves in, yeah. in understandings of whiteness, blackness, Jewishness, Chineseness, Japaneseness. Bring it full circle, Paul. I mean, that's what you mean when you were talking about reification, right? That you would take uh, something that's a construct, an idea, and make it as though it were something actual and concrete. Like that's what the Westworld reification means. You take something that's essentially abstract, it's an idea, and then you you reify it as if it were something concrete and actual, right? So you can do this, like you were just saying, in so many different ways. You could say. I'm white. Well, that's a construct, you know, so to make that like that's an actual thing and then to rest your identity in it is sort of silly, but you could do that with all sorts of different ethnicities or, or even um, theologies or uh, you can just do it in an infinite number of ways to take an idea, you know, which just exists out here in the ether somewhere, you know, it's, it's just an idea, but then you make it a concrete sort of actuality. And, and stake everything on it as uh, sort of building upon that foundation. That's what you're saying happens with language. Uh, so, so you're actually you're actually taking it a little bit of a step. Even you're kind of drilling down, right? You're saying, well, what is it? What is it that's behind this whole idea of white or black or Oriental or or this or that? And aren't you saying that? Well, if you if you actually drill down, what's really going on there is that we're reifying language and making that a sort of so conversion, ideally conversion, would be the death of all those identities and to be reborn into a new identity, right? It and is. sadly, that, that hardly ever happens. So then we have millions and millions of people who say they follow Jesus, are Christians, but really, we're still idolaters. <laughs> but I, yeah, no, you're right. But I don't want to, in other words, in doing this and saying this, I don't want to denigrate any culture or people. You know, I still speak English when I go to church, that I do many of things that are very much a cultural identity. When I was in church in Japan, we're going to do things differently. It's not that I erase my cultural 
I, I, you know, I can't escape. I speak English. I was raised in this country. It's not that I need to erase my uh, American identity. It's that I do not load my understanding of who I am into that. Who I am, I understand in Christ. And so if I'm Japanese, Japanese-ness is not enough to secure an identity. I think that what is partly what is taking place or should take place when we enter the culture of the church is not an erasure of culture, but a restoration or, or a, a sense in which culture is lifted up and, and completed. So we're not going to stop speaking the language or we're not going to be a different color. Or in fact, we're, we are not going to, you know, if you're slave free in the first church, this is the key of the book of Philemon. Do those categories get erased in the church? You know, Paul is saying to uh, Philemon, receive Onesimus back as your brother. He's really saying to Philemon, if you continue to treat him as a slave, well, he is my, my very heart. This is who I am. You treat him that way, you're treating me this way. And so Paul is actually making it an impossibility for the slave-master relationship to exist as it might have in the church. Sorry, Paul, not to be difficult, but when we sign just now that Australianness and Americanness are actually social constructs, they're not real. Like, how, how can you still be those things when they're actually not real things? You know what I'm saying? It's so, yeah. Paul, can I just add a, a, just a small point of um, that, that may be a helpful distinction is that I think that what you're saying is to not make it an ultimate identity. Uh, right. So that's helpful because I think that, you know, my friends who are African-American and, you know, stuff like that, it's like, well, that's okay. You know, that they're, they're black and they have a culture that they, you know, um, that they sort of draw their roots from and stuff like this. And we all, we all have that. But the mistake that we would make though, is to make that identity a sort of absolute identity Right. Because what Paul's saying is it can't bear that weight. I think that's why I don't want to speak for Paul, but I think that he's saying that anytime that we make our national our, our ethnicity or our language or our color or our sexuality or our or whatever, you know, you can keep on going on and on an ultimate sort of identity that it just can't bear the weight because exactly for the reasons that Paul, Paul can you can you can deconstruct it. You can, yeah. de you can sort of deconstruct those sorts of identities and reveal them for what they for what they are. In other words, they can't hold up as a as a firm rock, you know, for a foundation for an identity, you know. But I think it's okay to, you know, I, I like the to, we were talking about Kierkegaard earlier, Hegel, but the idea of you know teleological suspension. In other words, that I think that this is what Paul would want to say is that the gospel would locate and relativize uh, all of these various sorts of identities. And, and lift them up into, you know, sort of the glorious beauty of the gospel, you know, whereas outside of the gospel, we would, we would want to do the opposite thing, right? Is that we would want to drag down everything and just sort of um, to meet kind of like these strict boundaries that we create that are artificial boundaries. I think that's an important distinction to say, well, you can be Australian, Rob, you know, and then maybe you can trace your roots here and there or whatever. And you have this particular language and color and sexual orientation and whatever else, but that they, that can't function though, as an all, you know, sort of an ultimate identity. But that's of course what happens a lot of times is that 
when you talk to people that their sexuality, for instance, becomes like the most important thing that you could know about them, or maybe they're, you know, in other words, you could go through and, and talk about the, all the different ways that we identify. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess what uh, I'm not disagreeing with uh, either of you. I mean, I don't want to take over the class. We'll, we'll stop for this. I think Australianness, if I can speak as an Australian, I don't think that allows you to pick it up, look at it, and say, "Oh, that's nice." I think I'll just hold it loosely. To be Australian, as soon as you begin to use that language, you're trapped inside a fiction that is incredibly damaging, toxic, genocidal, because it's built on the wiping out of Aboriginal people. So I, I'm not sure how a lot of our identities can be held at an arm's length and not be made ultimate because they demand total allegiance. They will not let you pick it up and say, oh yeah, I might be American when I feel like it and then not be American. It's it demands your worship all the time. So, I mean, I know that's quite pessimistic, <laughs> but I wonder if, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, um, yeah, that's it's the, that's the danger. And I don't mean to make something that's actually quite complicated because to, to, to make it too simple, it, you really need to nuance it, nuance it. And well, the, oh, something that you've said that's really helped me with this is that the, in the scripture, whenever Paul says that in Christ there is no male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, right? That there's not an obliteration uh, because that's the ultimate way that we would do identity is to say, I'm a male, you're a female, right? So that's identity through difference. The way that I know that I'm a male is because you're a female or the way that I know that I'm white is because you're black or the way I know that I'm straight is because you're gay, right? We would always do identity through difference, you know? And so the way that Paul's explained this to me before is, is that in Christ, it's not that those categories are obliterated, but it's just that, but, but it's, but nonetheless, that in Christ, there really is no male or female. There really is no Jew or Gentile, right? That those, I think that that's what the apostle is saying quite clearly, you know, that those, those markers of identity are no longer absolute, but there really are still people who are Greek. And then there's other people who are German or Irish or Scott, you know, or male or female or whatever. It's, just, it's that those those categories aren't may are don't remain ultimate sort of identity markers in Christ that because they'll lead to oppression because I think that that's what Paul's getting at there is that those those ways of doing identity always lead to sort of violent orientations or oppressive orientations you know because we're doing identity through sort of what well, I think that well, the way Paul would talk about is in the flesh you know what I mean? That these are ways that we're not doing uh, identity in a sort of spiritual Christian ways, but we're identifying people by, you know, by the flesh. And so I think that that's just to say, and again, I don't want to speak for Paul, but to say that these markers, it's okay to be male, it's okay to be female, but to make, but to absolutize them, you know, is at some point probably going to uh, end up oppressing someone or, or, or right, or, or um, this, something evil is going to happen. In Ephesians, Paul talks about Jesus tearing down those walls of separation. I think primarily the, the big separation in the New Testament is the Jew-Gentile one. This identity in Christ is the one that is absolute and the one that, that we are to hold on to and, and recognizing the worth of male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, that all people have worth because they're creating the image of God, but also because Christ died for them all. Another angle on that is sin is uh, this reaching for something other than a relationship. Reaching for the nothingness can take any number of forms. 
in Japan, guilt wouldn't ring a bell as much as it might here in uh, in the United States. Community might be something to put an emphasis on versus if you don't repent, you're going to, you know, you take a room full of 20-somethings. I don't think guilt's going to raise their eyebrows or raise their ears. You know, that's every group, look at how they build their identity and then in the scripture or in the narrative, try to find something that connects or reaches into their search experiencing sin as even though they don't they wouldn't call it that. They're they're reaching for that substance yeah. or being or yeah. we can call that sin because it's a nothingness. And then you have the narrative of the gospel on this side. A ch- the challenge would be to connect. How, how does the narrative of the gospel and the community of believers interface with that? Right. right. That's the key question. What I understand, you know, the various theories of atonement, whether it's Christus Victor or what ransom, in other words, what is it that we're being delivered out of? I think we're describing it right now, that being Jewish, being circumcised, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? Mainly, they're ethnic you know, markers. You're circumcised if you're male, you follow the food laws, you keep the Sabbath. And then on that, you know, then the various classes, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there's major rifts in what the details of it. And what Paul is combating in the first churches, he's saying, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian, and they can't get it. Of course, you've got to be Jewish, they're thinking. And some people are insisting on circumcision. What's the big deal about circumcision? Well, because that's the marker of the law. And what we mean by the law is the way that you do identity is in and through the law. It's, an, it's a marker of what Jewishness is. And so Paul gets crude, I guess, in Galatians. He says, well, if you insist on these people insisting on circumcision, tell them to just go ahead and cut the whole thing off. Just emasculate yourselves. They're attached to this identity, and they can't give it up. Oh, isn't the whole thing about racism, and not the whole thing, but a big part of it, I think, of the gospel, right, is about racism. Like, this is part of the the work of N.T. Wright that I really appreciate when he talks about justification. And he says, well, how can you tell that someone has been reconciled or, you know, right with one another? It's that they can sit down at a dinner table and they can share a meal that a Jew and a Gentile who have nothing in common when it comes to food outside of the gospel can sit down and they can break bread together and have a meal, right? And so to me, the whole, if you, if you know, you can read the gospels through the prism of sort of like race relations, like, you know what I mean? It's kind of an interesting way to read the gospel. So you have like the Jews, the, the Samaritans, you have the Canaanite woman, you know, you have like all these different types of people, men and women, everything is at stake really with what we're talking about when it comes to this conversation with identity in regard, especially in 2022, at least here in the States, um, about what, what is the gospel? And that it's that I think that right off the bat, like what the gospel has to mean, the good news is that we don't have to do identity anymore. Uh, that's you know north and south, east and this is Hegel. Let's go back to David what we were talking about earlier. That that's always the dialectic that we're working with, right? North, south, east, west, male, female, black, white. This is just how we think and do identity outside of Christ. 
And so to me, this is the good news of what Paul is trying to tell us is that, yeah, but those things that peace, in other words, there's violence, there's a antipathy, you know, there's a, there's an antithesis, there's a division or a divide or enmity uh, in the way that we do socialization outside of the gospel, how we do anthropology, how we do economics, how we do sexuality, everything, that there's a, you know, a divide. And normally uh, what happens in that with that divide is then violence and oppression. And so what I think that Paul is saying that the gospel brings them is peace. You know, how can, how can the way that Paul was describing earlier about, you know, Japanese language and the Japanese way, like, that's not a peaceable type message, right? Like that's a like we can never be unified with that type of thinking because we, I can never, no matter what I do, I can never be Jewish. I can never be black. I can never be Japanese. I can never be, you know what I mean? There's these identity markers that are exclusionary. They, they, they mark out the boundaries, you know, they, they force people into a strict in-group, out-group distinction, which to my mind is what fundamentalism always is. You know, fundamentalism always draws a strict line of who's in and who's out. And so we can do fundamentalism with race, with sexuality, with nationalism, with economics, you know, all the way down. And it's a type of violence, right? That we, that, that, that's inherent to that way of doing identity. And so Paul, what I think you're describing is a peaceable way to think about our neighbor. And this is the thing that killed Christ right? Why'd they kill him? Because he would attack the Jewish temple. He seemed to be attacking the Jewish Sabbath. He did. You know, he literally said that the food laws are no longer valid. You can just go through the teaching of Christ that he's actually going through. He's not just attacking the tradition. He's abrogated the law. That's why they kill him. He said he would rebuild the temple in three days, the witnesses they bring against him. So the thing that we're describing is violence. It's identity, but it's a violent identity, and it's the violent identity that put him on the cross. Think of where he was on the cross. He's not under any law. That's part of the idea of being on a cross, because you, don't, you can't crucify a Roman citizen. The law wouldn't allow it. You know, in Judaism, crucifixion is illegal. Who do you crucify? You crucify one who is homo sacred, one who is just a bare, a bare life, not even human. You're a slave. You're an outcast. You, you're not a citizen. You do not fall under any law. And this is where they're putting Christ. This is the language of being crucified outside the city. He doesn't fall into any category that by means of which people would do identity. But you understand all of these identities depend upon, you know, those who would be crucified. The crucified are those who, the very order of the city, the very order of the sovereign, is he decides inside and outside. He decides who is in and who is out. And that's the nature of the city. A city, by its very nature, has to have walls, walls of exclusion, if not literal physical walls a country, a nation. It's very important we keep them foreigners out in one way or another, because they'll dot, dot, dot. They're not pure. We'll, we'll no longer be a pure race, or we'll no longer, you know, this is Arianism. And so can you be a Nazi Christian? Can you be, you know, go through, can you be an American Christian? See, the Nazi Christian, that doesn't quite hit us right. Can you be a white Christian? You see what I'm getting at? In other words, all of those things, if you put it that way, 
that you're putting primary emphasis on the, you know, the whiteness, the Americanness, the Naziness, the, you know, I am a ja- I am a Japanese Christian. And so what is being undone, I think, in Christ is the way that we would order the world. In other words, this is the cosmic aspect of this. This pertains to our perception of everything. Uh, and that's why Hegel is so important in this. Hegel does everything. Hegel is really the f- first one who talks about East and West in the modern period. He's the one who gives us the, the notion, you know, his whole ta- understanding is the slave-master dialectic. But in his understanding, you need the slave-master dialectic to come to a true understanding of who you are. This is the Christus Victor understanding, that this system is undone. I mean, this might not seem like this has anything to do with atonement. Like, this is a class on atonement. But I think it has everything to do with atonement, because as soon as we start talking about racism, or which is a construct, or the whole notion of a foreigner, that's a construct. And so, of course, where there's this, where there's the idea of a foreigner, there's no at one there's no atonement possible. How can how can there be at one if there's a native and a foreigner? How can there be an at one You know what I mean? If there's a if there's one race over and against another race. In other words, we normally think about the atonement in terms of pure abstraction. <laughs> there's an exchange between the father and the son, and there's all this weird stuff going on in some unseen realm. But what I think atonement really is in Christian, true, a true Christian understanding is two races coming together two you know, what I'm saying males and females coming together, foreigners, quote unquote, and natives coming together. Like that, that's what the atonement, the at one really is. It's not just an abstract. It's not an abstraction. It's something that you really can do and participate in and see. That's it. It's not a legal abstraction, which is what the game we've been playing. No, it's a real world making right between people, making right, doing away, and, and inherent in this is an undoing of violence. So that's the, the whole thing. I, what we began the class saying penal substitution makes no sense, even though we pretend it does. Uh, what we're trying to do is say, no, actually, we can make sense of this. We can name this thing that is being undone in Christ. But the, the reason we have such difficulty naming it is because we're, it's so pervasive. We're all just soaked in it. I did a blog of, a while back. I said, can white people be saved? And you can imagine, you know, the reaction you get. You know, what, what is it? What are you talking about? Can white people be saved? But once you understand, oh, that is, that's a construct that if you insist upon, then you've not really entered into the salvation that Christ is describing. Does this dovetail in, or does it just, on page five, it says... Christ resisted the lie in his manner of life, defeated the lie in his death, and exposed the lie the lie in, in, in his resurrection. This idea of the lie just keeps floating up to the surface on and on. That's it. His main conversation partners, the people that are attacking him, are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the ones who would do life in the law. And the ironic thing is that penal substitution is just a repetition of the Jewish mistake. The, the law is determinative of the, arbit, you know, it arbitrates salvation for us. I just see that, oh no, the whole teaching of Christ is an undoing of that lie, that Christ is picturing himself. The passage there in, in John that is sometimes questioned, you know, he, he's writing in the dirt with his finger. It's actually a echoing of when God writes with his finger the Ten Commandments. 
same language. It's just an echoing of that. That is, the law would say this woman would have to be stoned. And Jesus is, I think, claiming in this that here is the one who wrote the law. Here is the one who embodies the law. Here is the one who is greater than the law. The law is, in fact, this thing that is submitted by Christ. If we think of this law as the law of sin and death, uh, that this is the thing that has a grip on us. You understand this is a punishing law. It is a punishing law in that we would oppress, you know, we would oppress others or we would be oppressed, or that even we would oppress ourselves. Well, this is a psychology. Why are people self-destructive? Why, why are people masochistic? I think it's because of this thing that we're describing that one part of them would punish another part of them. They would extract the punishment. That we all kind of understand penal substitution and its absurdity because it's that lie and absurdity that, in a sense, that law of sin and death that, in fact, we've imposed upon ourselves. And the great tragedy, I think, just an abomination, is that we take what is a human perversion and we've projected it onto God and we've made the whole economy of salvation a reflection or projection of what is the problem that we face, and we've made the problem, we pretend like that's the solution. That's what he's doing throughout, you know, with this confrontation with the Jews, the Pharisees, that he's it's always this uh, idea that Jesus is a kind of anarchist, in their view, that he would undo their religion. He would undo Jewishness. He would undo uh, all that they think is valuable and worthy. We can say they, they no longer have a problem with idolatry per se, but of course they haven't learned the lesson of what an idolater is. They've continued to do, they would continue to do with the law what they would do with an idol. They would reify it. They would make it absolute. Because Jesus takes things that are against the law in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he basically says, if you think those things, you've, you've done them. This gets into, you know, the, the, what you're describing is that the way you keep the Jewish law, they're focused on the outward aspect of it, the circumcision, the food laws. So when we, you know, this is the, the new perspective on Paul that has made some, I think we need to take account of that. I don't think it's made quite the revolutionary difference that people might imagine, but it has made some difference. And that is that when Paul is talking about works of the law, he's not talking about doing good stuff. He's mm -hmm. talking about works of the law or circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping. And that's why, you know, Matt brought out, oh, it's a kind of a big deal for Paul when Peter comes to Antioch, that Peter comes and he refuses to eat with the Gentiles, and Paul condemns him to his face. Mm -hmm. because for Paul, that would be a failure of the gospel. And so the, the Jew-Gentile difference is the archetype for Paul of all of these differences that we're describing. And the key aspect of that, you know, that's why Peter has the whole vision with the, the food let down, because those are foods that are forbidden. But he's about to go to a Gentile house, the house of Cornelius. He's going to sleep and eat gentile food he has to be prepared to that to do that 
in order to live deliver the gospel to them. He got the lesson there, step one, but he, he forgets it in some way because they're so steeped in doing identity in and through the law, in and through Jewishness. That's what the new perspective brings out. We pit James against Paul as if there's some difference. No, Paul didn't have any problem with people doing good works. Right. Doing good works, of that's course. Yeah. That's you. Yeah, that's 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 Im implicit. So, Paul's missionary strategy in First Corinthians nine is uh, I've become all things to all people in order to win some. So he is foregoing his identity as a Jew to the weak, I become weak to the, those under the law, I become like when, when under the law, though I'm free from the law, you know, in order to do, and you see it in Acts, how he had someone took, uh, was it Titus or somebody in to have him circumcised or paying for people's purification rights. And he did all these things that wasn't necessary for him to do, but he did it for the sake of the gospel. To play devil's advocate, we're talking about all the, the evils, and, and I, I agree with the evils of nationalism, racism, feminism, you know, all the isms that separate us from one another. And yet it was God who made Israel a separate nation from other people. It was he who gave them the law, who gave them you know, promises of territories that would be your family handed down from generation to generation. You know, me, I, I'm, I'm awful. Full. I've always had a little sympathy for the Jews in saying, you know, wait, this is what you gave us. You, you created us. And now you're saying, oh, sorry, there's no difference. Gentiles, you're all the same. Get over it. You know, what is a Jew? Was Abraham a Jew? He wasn't a Jew, right? That's correct. He's the father and, of course, this is the idea is that Jews are created whole cloth, and we can see it. What is important about being a Jew is there in the person of Abraham. The rest of it is just an add-on. You know, this is the thing that Paul is continually doing, that what comes prior to the law, prior to Jewishness, what makes the Jews the Jews is not the law, is not ethnic identity, is not those ethnic markers. But it's the sense that Abraham is called out of the nations. In other words, I think that here that we can actually trace, think of chapter 12 of Genesis over and against chapter 11. Chapter 11 is kind of the height of this identity. You know, they, they have a tower, a reified tower. They're going to use an implicit use of language to storm the heavens. They're going to make their name great. What marks Jewishness is this dependence that God will make your name great. And so they're not going to have a king. They're not going to have any of the accoutrements, supposedly, of nations. But, of course, if all of that eventually falls, all of that eventually crumbles, little by little, so that the Jews, in some way, uh, become indistinguishable, and then they're obliterated. That, that there's still this Jewishness, even though these people are dispersed. In other words, there is a thing that is being brought to us in Judaism that is over and against the way that identity works through the nations. Now, this part, you know, we could go into detail about this, about the law and the nature of the temple 
and different interpretations of that. But a little bit of this has to do with our traditional understanding of, of what the function of the temple was. You know, Christ is going to say, I'm the true temple, I'm the true high priest, that here is the fulfillment of these things. In Jewishness, per se, in the temple, in the law, in the priests, in the religious system, there is no inherent explanation as to the meaning of these things, other than that, you know, the temple is a kind of microcosmos. It is representative of a new cosmic order. You know, the actual sacrifices were a cleansing of death, a, a dispelling, you know, the two goats, this is more detail than you want, that, it, that we almost need to go back and reinterpret uh, what is taking place in the temple and the sacrifices and that is going to be fulfilled in Christ. So I, I think that what we are describing, it should not surprise us that it is a perplexing problem. This is the irony of the Whoopi Goldberg thing. What she's up and against in the reaction of Jewish Zionists is that, no, we Jews are unique. We Jews are a race. Adolf Hitler said so. Well, <laughs> Adolf Hitler did say so. But Adolf Hitler, is he's not telling the truth. This is an understanding that Jews today continue to have. It's very similar to what I've described. You know, you're almost anti-Semitic to talk this way. But you understand that for Jews, the New Testament is anti-Semitic because it is a deconstruction of the category of the law of Jewishness of this identity for some Jews, not, not all Jews, but for a, a Jewish nationalist. The one thing that you cannot, you know, to be a citizen of Israel, to be a Jew, your mother has to be a Jew. If you're male, you still have to be circumcised. The one disqualifier, as I understand it, in the nation of Israel today, you can't be a Christian. Right. Because to be a Christian is not to be a Jew. So we're still dealing with this. And I think Israel and Zionism and Judaism is just a case in point of what every little tribe and people and nation state, that's what we always do. And I think that was what was from the beginning. Even in the Old Testament, there was this deconstruction, this undoing of the way that we would normally do identity. Sounds good. All Thanks. right. Thank you. Thank you All right. Appreciate you guys. Good night. I got it. Bye. Bye, guys. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.